The Northwestern Territories of Canada to this day remain as some of the world's most untouched wilderness. Filled with gigantic mountain ranges, incredibly dense forests, vast rivers, hot springs, and teeming with wildlife, the area has always been a nature lover's dream. In the corner where British Columbia, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories meet, nestled between the McKinsey Mountains and the Selwyn Mountain Range, lies the 200-mile-long twisting river system of the South Nahani River. A spectacular river in its own right, with falls nearly twice as high as Niagara. Even today, the Nahani Valley is only accessible by river, plain, or by foot. On the surface, it seems as though it is a true paradise. But deep within this remote paradise of the Nahani Valley, something strange is hiding. The mysterious river valleys of Nahani National Park have a reputation for breathtaking scenery, hidden riches, and a trail of headless, headless corpses. corpses. Although the valley temperatures are typically at least 30 degrees above normal all year long, no settlers have ever staked claims to its fertile soil. The Indian tribes avoid the valley at all costs, and the trappers leave animals within the boundaries of the Nahani untouched. Since the Dene people settled in the area over 10,000 years ago, the lore of hidden tropical gardens, mythical creatures, giants, and spirits hiding in the park's hot springs and tufa mounds abounded. The very name Nahani means people over there far away. Today, much of the Nahani Valley is a sacred and protected place. Many areas are closed off to the general public, and so much of the valley remains veiled in mystery. But in the summer of 1897, the morning papers across the nation screamed with headlines like, Gold, gold, gold. 68 rich men on the steamer Portland. Stacks of yellow metal. The curious thronged through the streets towards the wharf where the steamships in Portland had just arrived back from the Yukon. They cheered as grizzled men wearing new suits and long beards struggled to lift ashore leather satchels stuffed with gold dust and nuggets. Fifty years after the first great gold rush of Northern California in 1849, persistent rumors of gold in the North had prompted a steady trickle of prospectors to set off in search of it, despite hostile wilderness of dense forest, short summers, and brutal winters. During the 18 months that followed, 100,000 flocked to the Yukon in search of the shiny metal that would surely change their lives forever but were instead assailed by scurvy, bears, and punishing cold. It was shortly after this time, in 1904, the two brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod, decided to head to the Nahani Valley in search of gold. It was an area so difficult for anyone to get to, they believed it should be a good place to prospect. The brothers were right. That first trip netted them around 40 ounces of high-quality ore. It wasn't long before the two brothers decided to make another trip into the valley. 
1905, the two brothers once again made the trek back to the Nahani Valley. That was the last anyone ever heard of Willie and Frank McLeod. So in 1908, another brother, Charlie McLeod, decided to journey to the valley to lead a rescue expedition to see if he could find any sign of his missing brothers. On the banks of the Nahani River, Charlie's expedition found the bodies of his lost brothers. Both men had been decapitated, and their bodies left almost like a warning to anyone who dared take the valley's gold. One man had his arm reaching toward his gun, his blankets thrown over his brother as if he had leapt suddenly from his bed. To this day, no one knows who or what killed the two brothers. But this is just the beginning. These were the first headless men whose story became known. It is still popularly supposed the Valley of the Golden Headhunters of the Nahani may be myth, but its murders are hard fact. Join us today as we take you to the Valley of Headless Men. Hey, all you campers and counselors, welcome back to your favorite podcast, That Would Be Rad, a podcast that majors in 80s and 90s nostalgia, comic culture, all things paranormal, and minors in retro video games, tabletop RPGs, pre-internet mysteries, and raising our kids to be half as cool as we were back in the 80s. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Bentz, and this is your other host, Woody Brown. What's up, dude? Well, first, uh, please forgive my obvious nasal congestion uh listener because uh, I know. It's an, it, as annoying as it may be to you i can promise you it's far more annoying for me i know i'm afraid you're gonna get me sick first off you're the one that got me sick we already talked about mm-hmm. that i think we established that previously no sir uh dude what a perfect way to kick off our summer at camp rad strangeness than to talk about this valley of headless men I know. I, I I couldn't agree more. And honestly, usually it's me like bringing something to you and you're like, oh, whoa, I haven't heard of this. Oh, yeah. You got me on this one. For I've never sure, heard of it. Man. I mean, okay, look, admittedly, there are plenty of like encounters, abduction stories, weird theories and phenomena that I am not quite as well versed as you. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it is, like you said, super rare um, that I yeah. find like, or I come across something, I'm like, hey man, have you ever heard of this? My favorite thing in the world is when you're like, uh, no man, what is that? Because then I'm just yeah. so pumped to just dive in and, and and find this stuff out. And so when I ran across this story, immediately I was like, what? And, and as I started to uncover stuff, it just became more and more and more intriguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like at summer camp, you can't get your swim badge until you take the swim test. So bro... <laughs> Let's dive in. <laughs> I want to talk briefly about the gold rush that was going on during this time period. 
mm-hmm. again, I wasn't too familiar with the Klondike Gold Rush, really. I mean, I think when we think, when you and I, and a lot of our, well, maybe that's a, maybe that's a bad assumption, but I would say maybe some Fancy. of our listeners know of this, but for the most part, when you think Gold Rush, you think California. If you're here in right. Georgia, you think of the mm-hmm. town Dahlonega, which is, yeah, uh, you know, where gold was found here in Georgia. But I had never, ever heard of the Klondike Gold Rush. Yeah. And and, and what, what year was this? So it was around 1897 is whenever it kind of started. So, so would this have, and I don't mean to like derail your flow here, but w- would this have been the same gold rush that, that Albert Osman Dude, it's so f- <laughs> was coming over. It's for? so funny that you asked that because side I note, ruined it. In case you're wondering, listener, Albert Osman, who we talked about in episode 37, mm-hmm. was the Canadian gold prospector who was kidnapped by Bigfoot and held captive for six days in 1924. If you don't know that story or you're not aware of it, you're gonna want to go back and listen to our episode again. That's episode 37 where we cover that story. But no, mm-hmm. to answer your question, that happened in 1924, and he would have been about four years old during the Klondike Gold Rush. Oh. Now, hmm. you know, he's kind of a tough dude. He survived yeah. six days with the family of Bigfoot. But That's I don't true. think as a four-year-old he would have uh, begun <laughs> his his gold mining expeditions. Yeah, you're probably right. So here's what's interesting about the Klondike Gold Rush. It was, well, first off, the folks that flocked to find gold are actually called stampeders, which is a, I mean, really, it's pretty fitting pretty cool. term. Yeah. yeah. And we're talking like 100,000 plus people flocking to this area, boarding ships in Seattle and other Pacific ports, Whoa. heading north to, to the Yukon area. And all through the summer and the winter of 1897 through uh, 1898, um, these stampeders poured into these like, you know, what I like to like pop-up towns really uh, in like mm-hmm. Alaska and stuff because, you know, all this stuff was like wilderness. Well, then entrepreneurial people would be like, well, we got to have shops here. They're going to have to get supplies. So all these little makeshift towns were kind of popping up everywhere. And dude, the trek to get to where this gold was supposedly at in the Yukon was like a 600-mile trek to these gold fields is what they call them. 600 miles, dude, over extreme terrain, rocky cliffs, icy mountains. When I started looking up this stuff, and I cannot wait to put pictures of these people on our Instagram page for the artifacts, you've got lines and lines and lines of people, dude, going up these icy peaks. And it's Mm -hmm. completely mind-blowing, like something I've never seen before. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's not impossible to describe, but it's just crazy looking i mean all these yeah. little you see like an almost like the size of ants people just lined up all the way from like a little town all the way up these gigantic mountains is just a line of people waiting to hike in Man. it's just crazy and because a lot of these towns and stuff were essentially temporary and stuff they hadn't built like railroads or like tramways to you know carry people or supplies up and so these suckers had to carry all of their supplies on their backs. And then it, and then if they found gold, they had to carry that stuff all the way back. So you were like literally limited to like how strong you were <laughs> either way, not to mention all of the the you know hardships they had to face in mm-hmm. terms of the weather and stuff. Oh yeah. And I mean, yeah, they had pack animals, you know, like 
I guess, donkeys and horses and stuff. Mm -hmm. But because of how crazy and rough the terrain was, a lot, I mean, most of them would just die. They just couldn't make it. I like to consider myself sort of a pack mule uh, in my family. Yeah, well, I mean, if anybody's ever gone to the beach with children, you have to, like, it's the worst. Man alive. I mean, it's just, uh, whew, it's tough, man. It is uh, less of a vacation. Just like, how much stuff do we need? To just be able to walk from house to beach. Yeah, and it exactly. Is... Well, the, and then, then then the worst part for us, we had this like little. Uh, my in laws had this like little, uh, like a like a cart kind like of a thing. Wagon. It's like oh, four yeah. wheels. Yeah, and pulling that thing on on sand impossible. Is, it's going to fall over immediately. I think I just came up with a great idea. What if the wheels would transform into like little like skis? So that it would just, yeah, man, we just gave you, listener, mm-hmm. you just made a million dollars. Now, you're welcome. I think besides the fact that us being parents can be likened to being a gold prospector in the mountains. Or a pack mule that belongs to that gold prospector. Yeah, true. So there were murders, suicides, disease, malnutrition, deaths from hyperthermia and avalanche. It was it was hard on these people who... Prior to this, mm-hmm. a lot of them just had zero experience. I mean, you had like newspapers with just like huge headlines that were like gold found. And so like, I mean, to think about 100,000 people stopping what they're doing and heading out of town to find gold, like I said, not 100,000 experienced outdoorsmen. This is yeah. 100,000 just everyday people. It's just kind of crazy. So like... Were these people bringing like their full families and stuff, or was it more like? Yeah, sometimes. Men, so I mean, a lot of times the men out. were the ones that were like heading out, and I think right. sometimes it was probably more economical for their families to kind of just stay put, mm-hmm. and they just yeah. kind of head out and you know hopefully kind of come back. Well, over time, most of the just like in any kind of craze, uh, most of the gold and stuff had been found, had been claimed, and so people would just kind of go out there and either meet a tragic end or kind of like leave with broken dreams and just kind of head back home. But that didn't stop kind of the gold craze from happening. And that sort of brings us up to, you know, 1904 with the McLeod brothers. Mm -hmm. So Willie and Frank McLeod, who, as you heard at the top of the show, have been prospecting since around 1904 through different parts of British Columbia and, and Southeast Alaska. And when they arrived in the Nahani kind of area, they ended up on this, uh, well, the upper, what's called the Flat River, where they found Mm -hmm. this tribe of Indians there of the Dogrib tribe. Mm -hmm. And they had like all these like coarse, like pretty large gold nuggets. Some they said that were as large as like a quarter ounce in size. And so like, you know, the McLeod brothers like, whoa, here we go. So they made camp in that area. And, uh, and and real quick, how did how how did like just these guys did they sort of break away from like all the other thousands of prospectors? Yeah, yeah. So so you know this area is kind of further away from that like popular Yukon area, and mm-hmm. and part of the reason why they you know rumors of gold kind of spread through that community. You know, like, oh, right. I heard this guy found, you know, a new prospector coming to town to kind of cash in and they'd be like, where'd you find that? And well, I can't tell you, you get him real drunk and then boom, next thing you know, you've got these rumors. And so they kept on hearing about these rumors over time, kind of, and also being 
experienced in the wilderness, um, and I'll get to that in just a second, they kind of decided, well, you know, if there's gold here, likely we can kind of go up this river and try to find mm-hmm. some gold there kind of thing, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of what led them to, they weren't really necessarily part of the Klondike gold rush. And over like, you know, those couple of years until they struck out, I think it's, you know, close to five years or so later, wow. just like any craze, it's super intense and then it just fizzles out quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but they kept on going. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, so Willie McLeod is actually like hardcore outdoorsman. In fact, like one of the things that sort of separates him from your sort of Yukon Gold Rush Stampeder, so to speak, was that he packed light. I mean, he basically almost solely lived off the land. His hunting skills and stuff were, they rivaled apparently uh, those of the natives and stuff and was really well known for like being a great hunter and a trapper wow. and like being able to stalk a, a moose better than anybody and that kind of thing. So after they kind of met these Indians, they figured out and made camp in an area where they were told that the gold came from. And they ended up naming that stream Gold Creek. And kind of the way it's set up is <clears throat> sort of down the Nahani River, uh, there was a fort, uh, Fort Laird. And people would kind of use that as their outpost eventually. Mm-hmm. But they they certainly did. And so when they would kind of come back in town um, in between. You mean, you mean like the white, like settlers? Yeah, just anybody that was prospecting and stuff. Right. right. So they would right, use yeah. that. That was their means of transportation because, again, there there wasn't any roads. In fact, like to this day, you you still can't access this area unless you're in a plane oh, yeah. it, by foot. Yeah, plane or boat. Yeah, that's it. And, and, so, and even like by foot, I, what I read, it was almost nearly impossible. Right. And so that was part of the reason, too, why they were like, oh, man, this is going to be great because, look, not everybody's as skilled as we are. We can head out there. These, you know, tribesmen basically have kind of given us an idea of where this is at. I think we can we can strike it rich, right? That would be you and I. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they died. So they set up this camp in you know the area that's now Dead Men's Valley, and also an interesting point too is McLeod's one of them. Nobody really knows who. Kind of was in the habit of writing messages on trees, and a message mm-hmm. that was later found written on a broken dog sled read we have found a fine prospect. Wow. Kind of like I mentioned at the top of the show, they found some gold ore in that first trek in 1904. But taking the river back to Fort Laird, water actually started entering the canoes that they were using that they had actually made themselves. And they ended up losing everything but like t- a 10 ounce bag of gold. You know, but they were super enticed to get back there as soon as they could. And they tried to convince their brother, uh, Charles, to go back with them, but for whatever reason, he kind of turned them down. And so they took along a guy named Robert Weir, who was a Scottish engineer. And they were last seen buying, you know, supplies and rifle cartridges and flour right before they headed back out in their canoes up the river. Mm-hmm. So again, Charlie didn't go. He was supposed to. Their their third brother, he was the one that found them by the river, decapitated several mm-hmm. years later. I mean, just yeah. the sheer and- horror of that scene is pretty disturbing, man, to think about. Yeah, which is really also another bit of synchronicity because after a year of you telling me, I finally watched uh, Hereditary yesterday, Oof. and 
boy, it goes right along with this. Man, no kidding. That's intense, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, look, here's the thing. That story alone is fascinating enough, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these these gold prospectors basically disappear. The third guy, Robert Wire or Weir, just vanishes. Mm-hmm. No, never found. And these two brothers are found decapitated, mm-hmm. laying next to their fire or what was their fire. And even like I read that one of the brothers' watches was just like hanging in a tree branch above the body. And so it wasn't a robbery. The valuables were still there. Right. We could end the episode right here. But like I said earlier at the top of the show, this really is just the beginning. You know, I mean. After these messages, we'll be right back. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. For over 200 years, there have been reports of giant man-like creatures from another dimension, another world, I don't know. The most intriguing mystery on the North American continent. You're listening to That Would Be Rad. So after this happens, legend kind of spread and rumors spread that, that there was this lost McLeod mine where the two brothers had found their fortune and it just was hidden somewhere. Somewhere in this national, you know, this park, basically. And ever since, it's been the focus of just these countless, countless number of searches. But uh, as we know, and the reason why the episode doesn't in here is that the McLeod brothers weren't the only ones to either lose their heads or vanish altogether mysteriously. Oh, yeah. Nine years later, in 1917, a guy named Martin Jorgensen headed out to the Nahani Valley. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously lured by the promise of gold and, you know, for sure looking for this lost mine. And apparently he found something because he sent a letter to this, I guess, like a trading like a, post shop like a, owner. Like a telegram? From what I well, from what I read, he sent, a, he sent a, a message. And I'm not sure if he had a yeah. carrier pigeon or, or what, but this message gets back to the shop owner that basically says, I mean, I have just struck gold and i have found a ton of it well when other expeditions went out into that area they found martin's cabin burned to the ground wow and martin himself was apparently shot from what they could you know i guess figure back then he was shot from a distance and all that was left of him inside this burnt cabin was a headless skeleton no sign of the gold 
that he'd apparently found. So wait a minute. So he he had been shot mm-hmm. also. I mean that's weird. That kind of like changes the sort of the narrative of like okay, well maybe you know you, you, the sort of logical next jump would be oh well they're you know it's it's like the you know savage indigenous people or mm-hmm. you know how down here it's like scalping is kind of a thing. Well maybe up there they just you know cut the whole head right. off. But like but then if he was shot though, that's that's a weird little little bit. Well, of and another thing too about the McLeod brothers, there were a couple different like varied details about how they were found. One account said that when they were found, they were tied up to that tree next to their camp. Mm. Another one said they mm-hmm. were just rolled in their blankets, their bodies burned and decapitated, Jeez. and also shot, which is weird. Hmm. That is weird. Okay, so moving on from Martin Jorgensen. Somewhere around that Flat River country, apparently lie the bones of a young lady named Annie Laferte. Boy, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but there's a high probability I'm not. Essentially, while on a hunting party in 1926, she completely disappeared somewhere out in the bush. Months later, there's an Indian guy named Big Charlie, which, awesome. Cool. Who... Mm -hmm told folks that he saw her climbing a hill nearly completely naked and just acting <laughs> just acting like crazy and he like kind of called out to her and she just kept on climbing and so he was kind of so freaked out by it that he just didn't follow mm-hmm. her wow and then way to go yeah, Charlie. Hey, big charles another bit of synchronicity the person the spoiler the person who loses their head in Hereditary is named Charlie. Oh, man. Yowzer. I forgot I mean, about that. They just keep coming. Um, so that was 1926. In 1927, an outlaw known as the Yukon Fisher, he was found mysteriously, and his death basically still has never been solved. Mm. So his death has never been solved, and also where he ended up getting these like really coarse gold nuggets that he used to buy his rifle shells and stuff, they never found out essentially where he got those from. Now, when you say coarse, do you mean like unrefined in any yeah, way? Exactly. Like, like just in a big rock, and then you'll probably see like a vein going through. Well, it. there was different things that kind people would find whenever I was kind of reading through here. Sometimes they would find like like some quartz with like a vein of gold in it, but like the the actual mm-hmm. gold nuggets that people would like find like in rivers and stuff, or you know, yeah. are kind of like smoother and and um, oh, I know, see what you're saying. Right, it's not mm-hmm. like he's he is um, taking out chunks of it from a mine necessarily in the yeah, water. Yeah. He's finding it in the water, and nobody ever found out like where is he getting this gold, anything like that. But in 1927, his bones were actually found on the same creek where the McLeod brothers had staked that score years before. Holy cow! Same same kind of same area. And, and now is this this is still in the area yeah. of like the Nahani. Oh, yeah. Now it'd be the Nahani National yeah, Park. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And in fact, not even in just area. in that park, which is humongous. No, uh, oh, yeah. But in the same area and creek where the McLeod brothers found their gold and ultimately, I guess, died before. Mm. In 1931, a guy named Phil Powers also had his cabin burned down. At the time, the Royal Canadian Mounted Mounties. Police, yeah said that mm-hmm. the fire was caused by like a faulty stovepipe, but people 
essentially have never believed that explanation because Phil Powers was known at the time as a very highly experienced gold prospector who knew how to route essentially the stovepipe so that it didn't touch the timbers in the roof. And, Mm -hmm, you know, he wouldn't have made that mistake essentially. Second, the fire burned apparently so hot that it left only the bottom log and very little of Phil Powers, which, sorry about that, kind of gross, but if the roof was on fire, they, they basically have said that the roof would eventually collapse, right? And when it did, it would suffocate the fire out and some of the larger burn logs left would have been left in the rubble. You know, it's like whenever you're right, camping and you build a fire and it is almost time for bed and you haven't really like, you know, moved the logs around, you go to bed mm-hmm. or, you know, put the fire out is what you're supposed to do. But if you kind of like fall asleep and the fire still just kind of like real, real low or it's just coals, when you wake up in the morning, the larger pieces of, the, of wood haven't burned away, right? You still got leftovers mm-hmm. essentially. And so what this theory is basically saying is like, look, if the fire was so hot that it burned the sides of this cabin that he made, the roof would have collapsed in, completely you know, smoldered the fire and made everything burn mm-hmm. kind of slower. And so like the larger logs would... I think you mean smothered the fire. No, smolder is a, is a real fire word. What is that yeah. One? Okay, go ahead. Uh, I mean, it really is, but I don't know if I use it correctly. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know that there's a word called smolder, but... Yeah, burn slowly with smoke scary. and no flame. Exactly. Yeah. So... Sorry about your fire, Reuben. Sorry about your wife, Reuben. Um, <laughs> so that essentially that's not what was left. It was just burned down to the last level. You know, yeah. not only that, but most of his gear and belongings were still untouched, except for the gas cans or something that he needed to power his boat. Now, again, remember this is mm-hmm. 1931. I actually had to like, oh, what? He's got a boat. What about these guys making canoes over here? Oh man! So so every all these characters that you've been talking about this this has been from this is over the course of like twenty years yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And then in 1936, a guy named Bill Epier and his partner Joe Mulholland disappeared on the river. One of their friends kind of spent years and years searching for them without any success. Again, all that was found of them was their burned down cabin. Man. In 1945. The unnamed body of this miner from Ontario was found in a sleeping bag without its head. Jeez. In that same year, this highly experienced trapper, at the time famous in the area, named John O'Brien, was found frozen next to his campfire, matches still in his hand. Mm. We're going to fast forward a Mm. couple years, and in 1962... The pilot of a light aircraft miraculously survived a crash, completely unscathed, and essentially climbs out of this crash, builds a camp not too far away from where the plane went down, and he, and then gets his head. Well, cut off. he he was so well equipped to survive with like food, fuel, shelter, and camp provisions and everything that he was confident that rescue would come, you know, within a matter of days. So mm-hmm. he, as he kind of you know, past his time, he would write down in a diary all of his experiences, how he kind of 
watched as searching aircraft flew overhead, but didn't find him a couple times. And he was only about six miles from his destination as the crow flies. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that. And after around 50 days, man, 50 days, he said, that's how secluded and intense this wilderness is. He sat there waiting for rescue and then diary entries stopped abruptly, vanished. Wow. Uh, mm. About six months later, his plane was discovered by chance as like some, some folks were kind of just like camping, hiking through or whatever. And they found his camp and his diary. Again, to this day, no further trace has ever been found. Man. In about 1963, supposedly the last group of sort of gold prospectors in that area from Europe, again, vanished without a trace. Over the years, I think a lot of other camps were found with remnants of bones and scattered equipment. It was as if kind of, here, here's what I, here's what it kind of seems like to me, just on very, very surface level here, is that someone or something or a group of them want that valley to themselves. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I think I said it at the top of the show, man, this is an area that is completely lush, very fertile soil, lots of wildlife, oh, yeah. game, fish, I mean, anything and everything that a hunter gatherer would want but i mean that kept even Mm -hmm. the local tribes from like going in right yeah so the dene people which uh sort of the tribe or the indigenous people of the area who have been said to have been inhabiting this area anywhere between eight to ten thousand years which you know, on its own, that's pretty fascinating. But they would call, you know, now now it's known as the Nahani National Park, massive. There's huge swaths of land that are still completely unsurveyed. And it's known as one of the most remote places yeah. on earth still. Uh, because like what he said at the top, you know, you can only get there by boat, which if you do that, rapids are kind of insane. Or, uh, you know, you fly in on a plane, which even that's a right. little difficult as well, too. It's kind of in the northwest region, uh, right on the Alaskan border. But the Dene people would call Nahani itself means the people over there. And one thing that's interesting is is apparently like throughout history, I guess, uh, the, the Dene people have kind of moved further and further and further mm-hmm. away from this area. And like, like Woody was saying, this is an amazing place. I mean, it is, there's some like crazy kind of stuff. Like, for example, there's 3000 foot deep canyons all over it. There's a, uh, there's Virginia Falls, which is this huge Mm -hmm. waterfall that's twice the height of Niagara Falls. Um, Which is just crazy if you think about it. Yeah, it really is bonkers. There's a ton of natural hot springs that the tribes people, they speculate that this, it's from like underground tunnels, which, you know, that kind of leads to you know, if you believe in like the hollow earth concept, it kind of gives a little yeah. credence to that. But the main sort of, I guess, focal point or sort of the epicenter of like where, you know, all the the activity comes from is an area called 200 Mile Gorge. All the tribes people in the area completely avoid this area. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they believe that there's like a great evil there. They believe that there's these like invisible creatures or spirits or demons in the area. And like almost all the tribes completely avoid it, which is, you know, kind of... Again, it's kind of crazy because if you look at this, you know, of the times, you know, say you're looking early 
1900s, it's like if if you had tribes people, the people that were completely living off the land, completely off the grid, you know, to find these areas with, you know, hot springs and amazing vegetation and, you know, tons of, of animals and, and, you know, foliage and fauna and everything, you know, that would be like the place to 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 live, you know, mm-hmm. but because they had such a strong belief that there was, you know, this massive sort of epicenter of evil in this area, they just continued to kind of move their encampments like further and further and further away. Yeah. I mean, think, dude, even to your point there, it's like, we're not talking about nowadays when it's like, well, you know, I don't mind living in a, here we go, get your shot glass ready, here it is. rural area. <laughs> That doesn't have like a target or something. Right. You know, we're talking about the only means of their survival depends on what they glean from the land, Mm -hmm. right? And so to completely avoid an area, I mean, they're not going to be doing that lightly. Right, right, yeah. Well, and and another thing too, and this is something that I find really interesting because we hear these sort of, these places all throughout history, whether we're talking about Shangri-La uh, whether they're talking about El Dorado, you know, people believe that the Nahani Valley was kind of the same thing. It was filled with, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, the folklore says it was filled with gold and treasure. Uh, that once you got into the center of it, it was a tropical paradise, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Um, and also, yeah. all the tribes, again, you know, I was talking about the Hollow Earth. They believe that that's where the entrance is. And if you're a longtime fan of like the paranormal, supernatural, conspiracies, whatever. This sounds an awfully lot like Antarctica. You know, they say that that's kind of another entrance to the hollow earth. There's a famous pilot, basically, that wrote in his journals, his diaries, back in the day that, you know, he did an expedition over Antarctica, and he kind of says the same thing, that there was this place that, like, kind of this huge sort of cave entrance, and you go inside, and it's, you know, like a tropical paradise inside of this what? cave. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll go. And, and, and he he and he says that he's been he he went into the cave. Yeah, so or he just like saw it from his plane or something. I don't know if he he was actually. Oh, he, we got to die, dude. We have to cover that. That sounds amazing. yeah, it's it's fascinating. But but honestly, this is a lot a lot like that. You know, uh, to me, the most fascinating part is so Nahani itself means the people over there, which right. already sounds kind of freaky, man. Pretty right? cryptic. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, Pretty like vague and kind of ambiguous, but the Dene people would say that like the Naha was this like a, a warrior tribe that they they didn't even consider uh, like so one of the things that we talked about like uh, when we were talking about Albert Osman is like we were talking about how in all these indigenous cultures whether in the U.S. British Columbia Canada wherever. They would always kind of have a another tribe in their area that they that they just considered another tribe of you know quote unquote wild men and you know yeah. long before like you know the the term Bigfoot or Sasquatch or any of that was formed you know it was just like oh well they're just wild men and usually they were covered in hair they were taller and all that and so all these other tribes have that they would say oh well it's just like another tribe well the interesting thing about this and this is actually the first time that I've heard this is. The Dene people believed that the Naha tribe, they they never classified them as just another tribe. 
they actually called them, quote, a barbarian army of the great evil. Whoa. Apparently they, which this is another thing that wasn't a very common, you know, uh, like Indian sort of uh, tradition, but they wore masks and they wore unexplained armor with menacing markings all over it. Uh, they said Holy that they smokes, were man. they were to they were said to be as tall as three men uh, high and carried strange. This is the crazy part. They carried strange weapons capable of destroying entire villages. Jeez. Yeah, and their trademark was basically they would take the head off of you know their enemies and they never took prisoners. Man. So it, it's pretty fascinating, and you know I, I love the idea that like okay, these things are like giants. It's like, okay, are these extraterrestrials? Are these, I mean, this is the That Would Be Rad podcast, so naturally we're going to lean in. But Maybe they're time travelers. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> were they basically? Yeah. I mean, they, like, so these were another kind of tribe, a warrior tribe. They were known as like barbarians. They wore armor, wore masks, and had weapons that could destroy entire villages. I mean. Oh, man. I mean, that kind of sounds like Jeez. futuristic something. Yeah, or otherworldly or other dimensional or whatever you want to call yeah. it. I mean, for sure, man. Yeah, it's uh, – and so one of the fascinating things is the Naha tribe, they completely disappeared at the beginning of the 19th century and only left a few artifacts and stories told in, you know, the oral history of, of uh, the, you know, surrounding the sort of tribes or whatever. Wow, uh, which is pretty fascinating, and I mean, what's weird too is like, if if all of these sightings of this tribe, if they disappeared, then like, then what was carrying on? You know, it's like where, right? Did this whole like group of you know monsters or giants or people or aliens, or whatever, did they were they there at one time and then suddenly something happened and they disappeared or left or whatever? you know, speculation you want to lean into. And then did the, maybe the Diné people, did they continue on this sort of like, you know, as graphic as it is, cutting the heads off of, right off of, just to kind of keep the thing going so more settlers wouldn't come and, you know. Yeah, and, you know, this transitions perfectly into what's going on here, yeah. right? Like what what do people think is happening besides it being... You know, aliens or creatures or monsters from from beyond. Mm -hmm. A couple of things. First off, like one of the theories is like, well, I mean, we noticed that they all had scurvy. Yeah. You know, here's the thing about scurvy, folks. Uh, number one, it is kind of a crazy disease if you don't know anything about it. It's actually, I remember the first time I ever read Didn't about you it. Have it in college? Was in it? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I ate plenty of oranges. Mm. Um, because of it's due to a lack of vitamin C, mm. and whenever I first read about it, it, was on a in a book about Ferdinand Magellan, and I had never heard about scurvy or anything about it. But you know, back in the back, back, back in the day, before people knew, hey, you need vitamin C, people would start noticing like on ships and stuff, like, whoops, uh oh, man, you all of a sudden have like your gums and stuff are bleeding, your skin is bleeding and oh. your wounds aren't healing and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Wow. In journals from back then, people would be like, I mean, they thought their like teeth were melting, you know? And so when you when you think about scurvy, it's a little different than no head. Right. Very different. You know? And yeah. by the way, if you are thinking about 
setting out to sea again the the easy cure back then was you just had to take plenty of oranges mm-hmm. with you no no joke i take vitamin so, c gummies so i'm fine i mean you're good man <laughs> no scurve obviously another one of the theories is that you know the natives in the area didn't want these folks coming onto their land destroying it taking the the gold and stuff that po- potentially they would have used to you know trade and 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 you know interact with settlers and and that kind of thing mm-hmm. Or that it was sacred land and it was a very like sort of spiritual reason that they would, you know, kind of do these things. Because if you think about it, if there was like a sacred place and it was your cultural belief and almost job or duty to protect it. Right. All you really, you know, what would you, well, you, you know, let's just say you killed these guys that you felt were invaders mm-hmm. and kind of make an example of them so that the story would spread make it a scary place and less people will come, right? You're not going to have 100,000 people lined up right? ready to invade, you know what I mean? Well, and that, that that's one of the things for me is like, you know, I, I always like to entertain like the most sort of like off the beaten path possible, you know, uh, conclusions, I guess. And, yeah. but I mean, it does, this does feel like a good motive for, like I do believe that there was a or that there were a Naha, like Naha warriors, you know. But, you know, like they even say that like, you know, in their own sort of oral traditions, they say that like they kind of disappeared at the beginning of, you know, the nineteenth century. And so like well that still leaves a whole lot of headless accounts, you know, still sort of unanswered. So it does it like it, it it does lead to having a strong motivation of like oh we're just going to continue on this thing and you know so these settlers aren't going to come and ravage our our beautiful land we're going to we're going to say that yeah. it's completely haunted by like demons and spirits and so i don't know it's it's like it's a real strong possibility for for both you know mm-hmm. yeah and i mean another kind of initial theory that people had was well you know i mean there's a lot of grizzly bears in the area grizzly bears are aggressive creatures that i guess you know strong enough to uh, like rip a guy's head off yeah but they're not known Um, for that also in none of these accounts not a single one was there any mention of claw marks or you know other bear sign i mean we're also talking about a time period again when people were like if they were going out there to investigate, right? Like the the Royal Mount, or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, mm-hmm. the people that they sent out there weren't just some like tender footed pencil pusher. Oh, these were like these are folks that are like used to the wilderness. Right. They know what to look for. They know what they're investigating. If it would have been a bear attack, they would have said, "Up oh, bear attack," mm-hmm. you know. Well, and and, and so and, sorry to cut you off real quick. Um, but the. Not only were like the Mounties like these badasses that, you know, were used to it. There's also like a hundreds and hundreds of accounts of, and again, maybe these, maybe they're all made up, but like all of these these uh, Dene tribes people, there were tons of accounts of of them finding their friends and their families in the encamp, you know, in their village with their head just ripped off, Good which Lord. is like, and you know, these are people that. I mean, that's they live off of the land, literally. So, yeah. you know, one other kind of explanation for the time period. It doesn't really explain them all, but not too far, about forty miles from Nahani, 
there was a, a loner named Albert Johnson. Now, Albert Johnson was a pseudonym. Nobody really knows his true identity, mm. but he lived in this like crude log cabin. He was also known as, or became known as, the Mad Trapper of Rat River, which... Amazing. What a cool, what a cool yeah. name. But in around December of 93, one of the native trappers complained to the local police that someone was kind of tripping his traps and, and, and then just like hanging them on trees. So in other words, like the the hunter would come back and hope, you know, man, hopefully I snared a, I guess a hare or, you know, a porcupine, a porky. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, a porcupine, something, right? Well, when they would come back to look at their traps, the snares and stuff were just like leaning over a, a tree branch and like, what the heck, man? So they complained to the police and kind of identified J- this Johnson, the the mad trapper of Rat River, as the likely culprit because apparently like he was kind of a weird guy and, and people had had kind of run-ins with him before. He's like, he's like, a, like so, a hermit, like a wild man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And later on in December or whatever, the con- the local constable and his uh, uh, they call it special constable basically went out there, and again, like considerable experience in this northern region, have trekked countless and countless miles before they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right, so they trek out to this cabin about sixty miles to ask him about these allegations and just kind of get his side of the story. They notice like some smoke coming from the chimney. They approach the hut to talk. And Johnson refuses to talk to them. They come to the door essentially, and he's just kind of like, they can kind of see him through a window. Mm. And he's just kind of sitting there, almost not even like as if they don't even exist. He's just not coming to the door. It's locked. He's not doing anything. Well, he kind of notices them looking through his window. And so he like walks over, puts a sack to cover it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so like these two police officers are like, oh, okay, well, we're going to go get us a search warrant and we'll, we'll be back. So they leave. And then, um, you know, almost a week later, they come back with a couple other guys. Uh, a posse is what we'd call it out, yeah. out in the West. Yeah. And again, this Johnson guy refusing to talk, not coming to the door, anything. So the police constable's kind of had enough. And he's like, you know what? We're just going to bust this door down. And they start to do that. And as soon as they started, this Johnson fella shoots him through the wooden door. Oh, boy. A brief firefight breaks out. The constable like is shot, so they're like, "Well, we got to, you know, retreat." They take him back because obviously, again, even though this is like 1931, it's still rough ter- terrain. Oh yeah, and transporting a wounded man, one that's been shot, 60 miles is going to be a challenge. Just dead so weight. The sooner the better. Let's get him out of mm-hmm. there. So they get him out of there. He, you know, he's okay. He's alive. He recovers eventually. And over the next like little while essentially this guy's just kind of on the run the uh albert johnson mad trapper of rat river mm-hmm. can't say it enough it's just too cool sounding <laughs> he's just like on the run he eventually gets cornered up in uh like the eagle river in the northern yukon territory and there's just a ton of royal canadian mounted police there they've got like a team sent out to like get him because he's just wild mm-hmm. and they go on this like 150 mile foot chase that lasted more than a month and ended in like this huge shootout, which he was fatally wounded or whatever. When they kind of searched his body, they found some gold teeth that apparently had been extracted from the mouths of prospectors that were found dead in the Headless Valley. Now, 
So many assume that Johnson had been involved in their deaths. Now, was were those prospectors? Were they were they like headless? From the article that I read, which was written in 1947, uh, they didn't say. Hmm. They also didn't say if any of them were any of those that we had named right. in here. But it just kind of adds to the mystery here. Man. And so much about this area, you know, again, whenever I was looking up this area, it is my gosh. I mean, did I just become Canadian, bro? Exactly. I mean, I we've I, we have to go yeah. there. And if you think that I didn't look up if there's any kind of like wilderness guides or anything, guess what? Uh, there yeah, are. Yeah. There's actually Nahani River expeditions Whoa. that are led by this company that you can like pay to go out there. Um, Man. You can order like a catalog online and, you know, smart on their behalf. When you do, you have to type in a little bit of info. Literally five minutes later, I get an email from these folks that are like, hey, uh, well, hello, Woody. Thank you for being in touch. I'm excited to hear of your interest in the Nahani. We would love to help you explore its wonders. Wow. I don't really want to end up headless. Yeah, same. I don't care about gold. So, you know, I think uh, maybe we do a little research on whether or not this stuff is still happening. I couldn't find anything past, really, the, you know, the the... I guess it was 1963 when the European gold miners just kind of vanished mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like we said plenty of times, it's still an area that is extreme, extremely remote. Yeah, I think the only kind of plane that you can take to get there is like one that, you know, if you've ever been on a seaplane, yeah. lands on water, yep. which is awesome. Those are fun. What a, what a interesting and wonderful way to kick off our camp rad strangeness because it's like, man, this no matter what, mm-hmm. who knows what the cause was, something is going on in this valley. Oh, yeah. And uh, before we wrap up, I would be remiss if we left out any sort of cursory research. And I happened to run across also Bigfoot sightings in the area. Uh, mm. And the tri- the local tribes called them the Nukluk. It was a sort of a Bigfoot, like ape-like uh, character it had like long which this is kind of this is sort of what separates it from like a typical bigfoot is like they're kind of known for having these like long beards arms and legs are covered in fur but they wear clothes and carry weapons what yeah it's it's really interesting uh, and another thing is they're they're within the area any of these sightings they're they stand like a foot shorter than like average humans so Weird. It's pretty fascinating. So, I mean, there you go. There's the other reason we, we get up there to try to find the Nucklock. Yeah. One last weird thing before we go. So in 2018, this group wanted to do a documentary uh, about this, mm. about this phenomenon, about the, the mysterious sort of shroud of mystery that surrounds the Hani Valley. Right. And, <laughs> dude, from what I can find on their webpage and stuff, I don't, they never completed it. Because they, they, I don't know if they ran out of money or if their bodies are laying by a river without their heads. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know what happened to them. So it's super interesting. Yeah. It's such an intriguing story. I loved that, you know, number one, you had never heard mm-hmm. of it. I, I hope that a lot of you listeners haven't heard of it. And, 
hopefully it sparks a little bit of uh, the summer camp spirit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm interested in is, listeners, what your thoughts are about this. Like, what are your theories about it? Is this, does this lean toward potentially like the hollow earth stuff that Tyler was mm. talking about? And, and if you know about that, then, you know, maybe, maybe you can like kind of find all those parallels. Do you think it was just the native folks trying to keep, uh, you know, keep out the white mm-hmm. man, keep them from ruining the area? What do you think? Let us know. And Tyler, where's the best place for them to let us know about stuff like that? The number one place is Instagram. Feel free to, uh, Hit us up there. We have a great little growing community, and we love the back and forth and all the comments. If you have any sort of ghost stories or spooky stories or anything that's more long form, hit us up at our Gmail. That would be RadPod. Uh, we do have a new shirt over in the merch store. Uh, you can find in our link tree on our bio, our Camp Rad Strangeness uh, camper shirt. We had a counselor shirt that was only avail- available to folks that were on our mailing list to dispatch, but those sold extremely fast and they're done uh so maybe next year you can jump on for those but the camper shirts are available and uh they're cool they're sort of like they're super awesome yeah. well they're kind and they're kind of like that um, it's gonna immediately make you think of all the summer camps you ever went yeah. to and we released a couple things not just the t-shirt you can get uh and i'm excited because i just ordered my own you can get a camper coffee mm-hmm. mug you can get a trucker mm-hmm. hat. There a bunch of different designs on a bunch of different types of t-shirts. Even tie-dye, man. Mm-hmm. Tie-dye is kind of making a making a splash these mm-hmm. days. You know, and they're kind of reminiscent to that charm of like those sort of crappy camp shirts, you know, you would have gotten in like the late 70s or 80s. Hop over there, grab something out of the merch store. There's some really cool stuff. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, you got anything else, Woody? Well, you know, I almost let it go by, but Every single week, one of the things that we say as we close our show and, and just all the time to one another is that we, we just love the fact that you listening to this right mm-hmm. now, take the time out of your day to kind of come along these journeys with us, whether we're talking about something scary or cryptids or even crazy things like the Valley of Headless mm-hmm. Men. We get a chance to hang out with you every single week. And for that, we could not be more grateful. So thank you so much for listening to our show and telling other people about it. Yeah, I think we forgot last episode, but uh, we're going to keep this tradition going. Get out there and just tell one friend about the show. Um, And that you know is like really into podcasts. Uh, I know there's millions at this point. So there's a lot of great stuff out there. But there's also a lot of not great stuff out there. So uh, tell a friend get them on board and uh you know we appreciate it like what he was saying we appreciate you guys coming back week after week uh without you guys we well we would still do it but we wouldn't record it you know just be strictly for posterity for our kids but you know it's because of you guys that we we put in all the work and the growing community is just you know super rewarding and knowing also that all across the globe we have folks listening that's really amazing that we can offend so many people uh, with our mispronunciation of of, uh, <laughs> of of foreign like lands and titles and names. But anyway, we appreciate you. We thank you. We love you. And as always, be rad. That's the way it
clouds in a time where I just needed some sunshine. You were already dead before you became a ghost. You always said our future would be a parade of flowers, but now all that's left is a single rose. That's the way it goes.